is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from cold, dark New York City. Uh, also in cold, dark New York City, we have Ryan Goodman. I think you're somewhere in New York City, aren't you, Ryan? I am, David. Uh, thanks. I'm in uh, Manhattan. You're you're in Manhattan? Yes. Wow. I feel yeah. I, I, <laughs> we're so close. Um, and... <laughs> Not in Manhattan, but also in cold, dark New York City. We have our friend, Lori Garrett. How are you, Lori? I'm shivering in Brooklyn. Brooklyn <laughs> shivering in Brooklyn. That sounds like, you know, the signature, one of those um, uh, uh, Lonely Hearts ads. Um, but uh, like in, you know, Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, and in Washington, D.C., we have our friend, Dr. Kavita Patel. How are you, Kavita? Good. Uh, three, well, I should say good, but also kind of sad. We crossed the threshold of like 3,100 deaths in a 24-hour period, which means it's probably 3,500 COVID deaths and counting. So, Right. You we're, know. We're, we're, we're now up in a kind of a 9-11 a day territory mm -hmm. with COVID, and it's likely to be bad for a while to come. We've got so much news about COVID. I looked at the New York Times website before um, we got together to have this conversation, and the top seven stories were all COVID stories. Um, and about half the lead stories in the Washington Post website were COVID stories. Some have been good. Some have been very, very, very grim. So I thought what we should do We'll obviously have our questions in our conversation, but maybe I turn to Lori and then turn to Kavita and get your your snapshot, your snapshot status report of where we are. Start with you, Lori. Okay, David. Um, on the good news side, yes, we have two very, very promising mRNA vaccines. It not only proves to look promising for treatment of COVID, but it's proof of principle for a possibility of completely revolutionizing vaccinology writ large for things like flu vaccines every year and so on, based on mRNA instead of old fashioned crude ways of making vaccines. And if they hold up and you know live out their promise, then we really do have a light at the end of this tunnel. Um, and I would add that Wall Street clearly believes that that is indeed what's going to happen and is beyond exuberant. It's going into territory that it's never been before 
and certain key stocks have grown on the nature of 600 to 800% since the epidemic started. So um, even the most cynical of uh, economists are beginning to adjust their guesstimates of how much damage this pandemic will actually do to the economy writ large. So Senator um, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler are getting richer and richer as we speak. <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> on the downside, there are quite a number of things. Obviously, as you noted, the daily toll is soaring. The much uh, anticipated and feared Thanksgiving explosion of uh, COVID is indeed now unfolding. And uh, it's likely that over the next 10 days, we're going to see the worst numbers imaginable. We're going to see log scale increases. We're going to be jumping each million my, my, uh, uh, milestone or goalpost uh, in you know two or three days instead of two or three weeks. So that uh, it's all accelerating. It's not just growing, it's growing faster than it ever has before. And already many parts of the country are saying we're out of hospital space. We have no more ICU room. We don't have enough healthcare personnel to create a secondary ICU, even if you send us supplies, uh, even if we put them all on gurneys in the hallway. And um, I think it's, it's uh, highly probable that several states will, in the next week, begin to warehouse patients in alternative facilities. Uh, and we'll actually see it, not just as occurred in the surge in New York in March, April, May, when we in fact outfitted the Jacob Javits Center and a few other sites in anticipation of the need for a great spillover of, of patients. That was never actually needed uh, in New York, but I think already key places around the country are showing that they've run out of hospital room and they're going to have to look again at what was done in Wuhan, taking the less ill patients and warehousing them in converted stadiums and sports arenas while the severely ill were hospitalized. So those are the key points. I think the final you know, really big concern is if people continue to resist uh, masking, resist social distancing, defy bar closure orders and so on, and putting themselves and others at risk, Christmas could really be catastrophic. I mean, beyond, uh, some new word is necessary beyond catastrophic, something worse. So that as we approach New Year's, we will cumulatively have uh, 400,000 deceased Americans. Well, I'd like to come back to that and, and describe how that could unfold, but let's get Kavita's snapshot. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's very, there's nothing I would argue differently about what Lori said, but to just put a little kind of nuance to it. Um, I think the key is, is we can stand up field hospitals, but it's personnel. I mean, we've heard this now, you know, there's just not enough. They, they asked me, I'm a, I'm trained as a general internist. I practice in a primary care setting. Um, by the way, like we're seeing so much more COVID, both asymptomatic and symptomatic, where literally I had yesterday three patients who swore on a stack of Bibles. They haven't left their home. They haven't done anything. They don't know where or how they got it, but they're positive. 
but I would say, David, even more concerning to Lori's point is, you know, they're asking me to kind of train back up on some of the critical care functions. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I think I'm pretty smart, but you know, if it's my own mother and you want me to manage their ventilator, like that's not good. I mean, I'm not trained to do that. And yet I'm better than probably, you know, they're asking for retired personnel to come in on standby. And do you really want to play that roulette wheel with your loved one or yourself that you're going to get me who's like not trained to do this? And I'll be thoughtful and smart, uh, but that's not the answer. And and then I'll say a lot of people have talked about burnout and fatigue. And, and it's funny, we've all gotten used to wearing our PPE and I wear the little hood and this and that, and I don't go to the bathroom and I don't eat. What's really fatiguing isn't that, it's fatiguing to leave the doors and then have people not believe this is real or not want to wear masks or make fun of you know, that this isn't so bad or that you see people getting on planes to go see their families for Thanksgiving. And I haven't seen my parents and worry they're going to die. And all those thoughts go through your head. So Lori's right. I, I, I Lori, I worry that, you know, this is going to be like the darkest period. And yet our country is just not like, we, they don't care. I don't know. I don't know how I'm begging people who are listening, because I think deep state listeners are smart, thoughtful, creative people, come at us with ideas. I don't know how to get people to care, David. And then I'll just to shift it to a little bit of policy. I was listening to a briefing um, around vaccine distribution. Lori, I, I'm tailoring this for you and me, my friend. You know, Palantir is staffing or running the... Um, Tiberius, which is the information management system to coordinate the supply of vaccines between manufacturers and the CDC. And for those of you who haven't gone to, I guess, Lori, which podcast episode of the Deep State, but you must refresh that uh, you will recall Palantir are our dear friends who also are the backbones behind uh, uh, the HHS Protect uh, data service that got stripped from the CDC caused a lot of controversy. Lori did a great job on Rachel Maddow's show talking about that also this past week or at some point in time. And I just want to flag that I don't understand why we think the very same team, like why do we have faith that the same CDC and the same company that has kept our data from us is now going to quote be responsible for vaccine distribution and that they're going to do it equitably so forgive me color me crazy but that just doesn't fly and this time i'm pissed because these are vaccines that i want to get my patients want to get and and i just yeah so we're i don't know david i serve this with a side of alcohol because that's what we're all going to need after this no on the palantir front this company, which is run by Peter Thiel, um, had obtained contracts related to uh, a number of databases in various parts of the federal government. And the contract to massage data coming through about hospitalizations and medical supplies across America uh, was handed to them by the White House. Uh, after Deborah Burks went on the rampage against the CDC in July, saying she didn't trust any of their data. Well, the idea was that supposedly then we would have every single day in real time updates on hospitalizations across the country. The actual, what has actually happened is 
everybody is in agreement that we don't trust one single data point coming out now about hospitalizations. It's so bad that even Trump appointees that are in charge of other things in the government are trashing all of this and saying, because of it, we don't know what supplies are running out. We don't know whether or not we have enough ventilators. We don't know if we have enough PPEs in this part of the country or that part. We have no idea if we need to back order a huge amount of dexamethasone or you know, fill in the blank, whatever drug, because it's, it is now beyond bad. It's in some stratospheric, completely unreliable, nobody believes it category. And most assuredly, um, the Palantir people must know that this is a contract that is going to end come January 20th or closely thereafter. And so they have no real incentive to fix it. You know, they're just going to ride the wave until Biden comes in. And uh, today, Politico is reporting that Biden is putting, um, following uh, the pattern that Obama did, putting somebody with no health experience but good governance, Ron Klain, in as Ebola czar. He's going to put in a gentleman with no health experience to be the sort of all of government coordinator for COVID response and then expand the portfolio of the Surgeon General back to pretty much what a Surgeon General was before Reagan cut it down because of his disputes with uh, C. Everett Koop over HIV and uh, create a stronger Surgeon General presence that will take some lead and that will be Vivek uh, Murthy. By the way, I would say, and and correct me if you think I'm wrong, Kavita, but uh, the fellow you're referring to, Jeff Zint, uh, Zint, um, uh actually has some technology background, first of all, um, which is helpful in this, and served very capably in the Obama administration in a number of roles, including running the Office of Management and Budget, uh, which um, is going to be essential to this whole thing. And if you combine that kind of Ron Klain-like ability to get the trains running on time with uh, Vivek Murthy's medical know-how, the idea is that you do have something that we're, I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to be to defend them reflexively. It just sounds to me like it's not a terrible combo. Um, no, I'm not. I wasn't implying that. I hope nobody thinks I was. I'm just saying straight ahead. This is what it will be. And of course, we're all anxiously waiting to hear who's going to be CDC director and who's going to run the FDA. Steve Hahn did go on the record today saying he doubted that he would re be retained. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <yeah. laughs> why, why that's news is like somehow, <laughs> what? Okay. Um, sorry. Sorry, and I'm, I'm sure that Robert Redfield makes the same assumption at CDC. I will give Redfield credit. Um, somehow in the last roughly three days, he discovered his spinal cord um, and is now saying some pretty strong things, the kind of things I wish he had been saying eight months ago, um, and making it abundantly clear to America that the only tool in the toolkit right now is social distancing and masks. There's nothing else in the pipeline that's going to be around during what is surely, he, the way he put it is we're heading into the worst catastrophe in American history outside of wartime. That's how he framed what the next two weeks will be like. 
And I agree. <laughs> By the way, I have worked, Jeff is very, um, I agree, Lori. I, I think, David, your point, running OMB, National Economic Council, and, and what I see in that appointment, by the way, um, is that you do need somebody, we don't call it the COVID czar, because that's not politically correct anymore, but I do think you need somebody who does understand how to pull on the different levers and can serve, because I think people have wrong or rightly kind of thought of um, COVID as kind of, quote, HHS really every single cabinet position has like a vested interest. So Jeff will be, he's trusted by Ron, he's trusted by the inside crew, by the president-elect himself. So I think that serves as a, criti a pretty critical function. But I'm, Lori, I wish I could be as optimistic. I mean, the, the Biden folks are in a corner a little bit. Yeah, I mean, firing Palantir, you know, getting rid of Palantir without having something that can seamlessly come in once the manufacturers have already done this. It's not that easy. So I, again, Tiberius, for those of you deep state want to Google it, you may not have heard of it. It is going to be one of the most important things you'll hear about when we think about vaccine supply and distribution. Ryan, I know you've got some questions on just that. Well, I wanted to just drill down a little bit deeper on when Kavita said a little bit earlier, you know, how to get people to care and then Redfield trying to warn people about what's, you know, what's left in our arsenal, about what we can do over the next period and shifted a little bit from individual behavior to a political cultural question, which is what do you, you know, Lauren Kavita, what do you think is actually going on behind, and I don't want to really put this in party partisan terms in a certain sense, but going on behind the Republican machinery that is in fact amplifying the resistance to um, social distancing orders, closure orders. You know, I, I saw that Laurie had tweeted about the Staten Island bar closure. So this one particular individual resisted the governor's orders to close his bar, his neighborhood bar. And then they organized for hundreds of people to come out onto the street in, in, in support of him without the following mask. night. Without <laughs> masks, none of them wearing masks and then shouting, uh, you know, uh, chanting. So no, no masks and chanting. And, you know, one tweet from the Manhattan Republican Party chair, uh, she tweeted with a video of the protest in favor of the bartender, hundreds in all caps, she said, hundreds of patriots have turned out to support the Staten Island bar owner who was arrested for opening under Governor Cuomo's lockdown. New Yorkers are fighting to take our freedoms back. And I'm just thinking, like, what what's behind that? Because they're she's killing her constituents. You know what I mean? I mean, that's really um, irresponsible behavior for somebody who's probably pretty well informed. So just well, to try to get underneath that. Ryan, in a way, I would throw this back at you because I'm, uh, I'm sure your answer wouldn't be that far off from what my answer would be, but in a different category. Newt Gingrich, of all people, is now on the rampage against Trump's lawyers uh, for, as he put it, you know, going off the deep end in claiming that the elections are fraudulent, right? And denouncing these two Looney Tunes. And uh, you can see all over in every kind of category of the transition that the Republican party is kind of splintered, that there is this category of Republican that is really libertarian, that has gone way to the Rand Paul place uh, saying, you know, nobody has a right to tell me I have to do anything. 
I will do what I want to do. If that means I get COVID and pass it to 40 people, that's my right, don't tread on me. Um, but you also have plenty of Republicans who are acting like horse whisperers in the ear of uh, uh, Mitch McConnell saying, we gotta get a stimulus package out passed. You know, the whole stock market is buoyed right now, but it won't stay up there unless you put out a stimulus package. Come on, come on, let's go, get that train rolling. And if you take it apart piece by piece, I think the Republican Party is completely fractured. And that the visible part of it right now, the part that dominates headlines and captures sort of popular attention is, is pretty loony. It's, it's really out there on the edge where, you know, God is protecting me or, you know, Jehovah is protecting me. Uh, I can do whatever I want. No one has a right, any imposition. If I don't want to wear a motorcycle helmet, I didn't wear a motorcycle helmet. And if it's my right to get in an accident, crack my head open. How dare you say otherwise? And I think where, where we've gotten with this damned epidemic is a, a critical collision point between public health and that set of sentiments. Um, you know, I think six months ago, all of this was conquerable because it was still really about economics. It was still really about my business is hurting. Let me reopen. Or, uh, you know, I've lost my job or I'm on furlough. But now it's way past that. Now it's in this whole, you know, when um, uh, one of the two lawyers for, you know their names, I forget, the man lawyer, the, the crazy guy that's teamed up, um, when he started saying, uh, it's 1776, everybody, you know, gather your arms and resist, surround Governor uh, Kemp's home, shout until he comes out, don't let him sleep, honk your horns, you know, he is a traitor and it's time to revolt against. Well, that's Republican versus Republican in its most extreme form. And I think, I think that's where we are. I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? You're you're following all the insanity in the courts. Yeah. Um, I mean, and so yeah. The his uh, his name's Lynn Wood. Um, okay. Yeah. He and uh, Sidney Powell seem to have a mind meld. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I I think. I mean, there's one dimension of it where I do think that some of these actors are not calculating their own like certain kinds of interests and in promulgating false conspiracies out there, but they actually themselves believe it. And that's a part of it that I think we underestimate. So I think they're like members of Congress. I think they're judges out there who actually are consumers of and of, of some of these conspiracies. And they're the medium of information that they use to get to get um, awareness of issues of our day from COVID to election fraud is polluted with so much disinformation, but that's what they consume. And and so there's a part of me that actually thinks that's also what's going on. Um, they're just caught in this cons world of conspiracies. And then there's the other part that might be more instrumental. And I, so with the, the only piece that I just, I'm trying to figure out with the Republic, part of the Republican party that has pushed even further with these resistance to closures, especially during this period of time, um, 
I don't know if it's also bought. The problem for them is that they they do have another perspective on what is the relationship of the government to the economy. And if you're going to not support um, financial uh, allocations to help small businesses, then what are you left with? Um, and what you're left with is a more of a cultural argument. And that's the, we're gonna resist and we have to open our businesses because you're not gonna otherwise give them the financial wherewithal um, to weather this period. And I've, so I've thought maybe a little bit more of it is actually calculated in that respect. Um, and that they know that they are right now riding this tiger, this wave of uh, support where these local people like Len Wood can ride this wave um, that he's now getting. Um, I mean, you've, because we've actually seen Rush Limbaugh and Laura Ingraham denounce mm -hmm. those guys yeah. as being too loony. I mean, whoa, <laughs> my brain is going to explode. Ryan, can I tell you though, because I, I come from the great state of Texas and everybody in my high school and grade school, they're all pretty big Trump supporters and, and they are part of this like movement. There was this movement in San Antonio, my hometown, San Antonio, Texas over Thanksgiving where they, you know, the, the mayor there asked for people to, ha to not have gatherings larger than 10 or something like that. And they happily, gleefully protested that. And, and I asked my, uh, literally one of my best friends and I said, what is behind this? Why, what, what on earth makes you think that like what I'm telling you is fake news? And, and Ryan, interestingly enough, cause she knows me, she trusts me. She said, look, Kavita, I think you are trying to, you know, talk about the numbers. She said, all we're being told is that, you know, we have to stop doing what we're doing, but it feels, she's like, but my, I can't put people in my home. And interestingly enough, she said, but you, you can have like restaurants in Manhattan stay open. And so she kind of made this interesting, for me, it was like an aha moment. It wasn't about the Republican party to your point, but if you start aggregating that mindset, she had a very valid point. She's like, why are people telling me what to do in my own home when Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio aren't closing restaurants? You know, and, and, and it's the convenience, right? You can, those of you who deal with statistics, you can manipulate any statistic to fit what you want the explanation to be. And that's exactly what Republicans have done. They've taken some of the like kind of policies, et cetera, and kind of turned them around to make it look like, look, the Democrats are robbing you of your civil liberties. This is the time to be outraged and morally, you know, out repugnant. Well, of course, the rebuttal to that San Antonio comment is the seroprevalence daily, the current incidence of new infections in New York uh, is a is about four percent just under four percent the mm -hmm. highest staten island uh, is double that more than eight percent in my part of brooklyn it's never once gotten over two percent mm. okay mm. so for san antonio where i'm sure the incidence is higher but i don't know today's numbers uh to not understand the difference about the risk of schools or the risk of restaurants or bars with based on prevalence is insane. We have counties now in the United States where in excess of 40 to 45%, even half in one county of all tests performed in a given day are coming back positive. When you have a prevalence like that, there is no safe way 
to maintain business as usual. You have to shut everything down. And the best way to argue for that is to look what happened with the UK, because you want a government that's a lot like the Trump government, that's the one. Mm-hmm. You want a great pal of Trump, it's Boris Johnson. They tried the Swedish approach. They tried believing that they could do a minimal lockdown, minimal anything. And of course it didn't work. And they had a huge summer crisis propelled by vacationers returning from Southern Europe, bringing virus home to Scotland, Wales, and England. And uh, they've went in a really tough three-week all-out lockdown nationwide from Northern Scotland to Southern England. And they got a 30% drop in prevalence. Mm -hmm. That tells you what you need to know. And now they're starting to reopen slowly, step-by-step, certain kinds of restaurants and so on. So, I mean, the problem here in the United States is, first of all, as everybody knows, we don't have a national policy of any kind. So there's no coherent, consistent cross the state border. And it all depends on who's politically in power, what the nature of their response is. It's not about science. It's about politics. Um, So that means that we, you know, we here in New York live in stark raving terror of all the college kids coming home for the holidays from outside New York to visit their families. Mm -hmm. We've been holding our caseload down and we fear it will explode. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also means that uh, we, we've never even entertained taking the step that many in public health advocate, which is let's bite the bullet, shut the whole country down, follow the UK example, the German example, the South Korean example, etc. Shut it down, identify the super spreaders, um, place appropriate quarantine measures uh, to limit their cluster effect, follow the Japanese design for um, pursuit of clusters and then reopen slowly step by step and maintain vigilance against clusters of outbreaks. And, you know, that's really the only tool we have. It's either that or we say we have no bridge of any kind built to get us from here to that light at the end of the tunnel, the vaccines. So what we're going to do is just let a whole lot of people die on this non-existent bridge to hell uh, and then one day, ta-da, we'll have vaccines. I, I, I worry about that because, you know, there's all, all this good talk about vaccines. And I think a lot of people are thinking, well, that'll get me out of it. I don't have to really worry about mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Uh, and there are going to be, you know, a couple hundred thousand people whose families will be saying for the remainder of time how unfortunate it was that they died in the months before the vaccine was distributed, mm-hmm. that the vaccine existed Mm-hmm. But they died anyway. Well, you may have noticed me looking away there because I was doing a little bit of arithmetic. And yes, you can play with statistics. But in 1918, in the Spanish flu, as many as 100 million people died, as many as 650,000 Americans died. So that's 0.65%. Where we are right now is a million and a half people have died. And something in excess of 300,000 Americans have already died. I mean, this number that we have now, we know is off by 20 or 30%. So we're probably at 2.3, of the global death toll, which is four times, three or four times higher percentage 
of the global death toll than we were in 1918. It means we have gone backwards. The rest of the world has learned from that experience and remembered from that experience. And our politics have essentially tripled. Now, the, the, this, 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 this death toll. Over the next two to three months, I, I think the issue is people just don't understand. They don't understand. They think, well, this will be like March or April or May or August. We've learned how to do some things. I don't need to wear gloves because of the fomite thing and, you know, whatever. And I've got this. And so what I'd really like to do is ask each of you, and I'll start with you, Lori, to describe how bad it gets. How do you know? You talked about Christmas being a disaster and 400,000 people being dead by the end of the year. And if 400,000 people are dead by the end of the year, this notion that 500,000 could be dead by the end of February is certainly in reach. We, we are going to approach in 12 months a death toll that the United States had over a couple of years with this Spanish flu in 1918-1919. How does that happen? How does it look? Do the hospitals by Christmas, you know, you go to your hospital and you have to go three states away. You're going to the football stadium. People are, I mean, it's, it, I, I think people need to have the shit scared out of them, to be honest. Well, with. let me let me take you, you back one step from where you've taken us to the numerical precipice. Let me take you back a little step. We've had um, an already hideous death toll. And we have here in New York still refrigerator trucks full of bodies of unclaimed deceased from April and May. All over the country, people are unable to have funerals. They're unable to to collectively grieve the passing of someone they loved. And so we have a nation of pent up grief, a nation of people who are going into what is the most fundamental holiday season of the year when almost regardless of your religious faith or lack of religion, it is a time when families come together, when families think about each other and will be thinking about the lost members of their families. Uh, And this will be a season of great grief. You know, there'll be that chasm, the families that haven't lost anybody and maybe they're in San Antonio, uh, Kavita's friends saying, I don't know anybody that's died of COVID. This is all exaggerated. I haven't seen it. And then the families that know that, you know, four uncles and, a, and an aunt are gone, right? And so the first thing I think is that we're going to go into a period where you're supposed to be full of Yule and good tidings and joy and gift sharing and great feasts. And for many, it will be so painful it's it's almost unfathomable how difficult this will be you know and i as someone who 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 lost my mother when i was young and we did not have a funeral i know what it means to go without collective grieving and without you know bearing your soul and coming together hugging kissing you know keeping each other strong 
So what we already have is this backload of, you know, nearly 300,000 people who have, who have, I, I saw the CDC guesstimates every death equals nine, statistically nine close grieving family members or friends. So nine times 300,000, that's a very large number of people who are already grieving. As we go into the actual holiday, you're going to see, you know, your TV will be full of all these holiday movies. Everybody's cheery, you know, <laughs> lots of jokes being told, drinking eggnog and all that. And you're meant to be feeling very upbeat, but you will be in lockdown and increasingly frightened hearing the sirens and your emotional response will be completely contradictory. I think then the second thing about all this, of course, is what's happening with all the healthcare workers who are, I mean, I think Kavita's put it very well. I would just say, you know, the burnout in a situation like this, what it really looks like is people who tirelessly keep pushing themselves to perform. We're not seeing healthcare workers walking off the job, right? I mean, they may eventually, but right now what we're seeing is you know, people saying, this is my job. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm an EMT. I'm a coroner. I run a morgue. I run, I'm a mortician. I'm an intake nurse. I'm a pulmonologist, whatever it may be. They're going to go to the job no matter what, but they're going to be pulling 18 hour shifts, uh, you know, four days on call, uh, all through the holiday, all through when they're trying to deal with their own families and their own lives. And we will see people cracking. We, we've already seen, I mean, there was this young woman nurse, Jody, from South Dakota, who posted a lengthy tweet that has really gone viral in which she described how her patients are treating her in the ICU, attacking her, spitting at her, because they don't believe that COVID is real. And even on their, before they get put on a ventilator and will never again be able to speak to their relatives, they're denouncing the nurse, denouncing the doctor, saying this is all a hoax. That's what they're dealing with. I mean, Kavita, I hand off to you. Yeah, no, I, I, there's nothing about that I disagree with, except um, the only thing I would just add is that I, I also don't know how just to put a little finer point on it, um, Mount Sinai Hospital and Health System, New York City, um, they they are only going to get enough vaccine. I keep coming back to vaccines, but you know, not all healthcare workers are going to be vaccinated. Even the anesthesiologists at Sinai who intubate patients are in incredibly kind of risky conditions. There's just not enough in this like very first tranche. So how does that, how is it going to feel? Um, the reason I bring that up is because Lori, like, how is it going to feel to be like me or one of these people? And, and by the way, like families, you know, my husband and I have fought about, you know, the risk I put myself in and I'm not doing it anywhere near what like a coroner or some of the other people are, but people's lives are going to be destroyed over this and all because of what we decided that we wanted to have like a turducken at Christmas and we couldn't like avoid getting together with people. So David, you put it eloquently, like we're going to have to have the shit scared out of people but how do we do that? What do we, I don't even know anymore. I really don't. Well, look at all the people that absolutely vehemently 
frothing at the mouth, deny that the Sturgis medic motorcycle mm -hmm. rally is why we have this explosion across the northern prairie states and industrial old Rust Belt states. Um, 460,000 unmasked people congregating for 10 days of frolic, bar hopping, and whatever else on their Harleys, etc. in Sturgis. And uh, you know, there's already been the epidemiology to show. So this one came home to Minnesota and here's the 25 cases that can be directly. So we can see the nodes that went from Sturgis to back homes to where everybody went. And from those nodes exploded outbreak after outbreak after outbreak. Um, we're going to see the same thing with Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And we're just at the beginning of it now. Mm -hmm. um, and as we go further, it's just going to get deeper and deeper. And let's just look at some realism on the vaccine front. One vaccine, you know, a week ago, we thought we had three vaccines. Now one is clearly uh-oh and sidelined. And that's the AstraZeneca vaccine because they fudged their data. Mm -hmm. they, they messed with their data and uh, they got caught. And the whole scientific vaccinology community said, say what? And they had, the CEO had to kind of admit, well, eh, you know, we did pool from people that got different doses of vaccine. And then we screwed up and everybody in this arm got the wrong dose and so on and so forth. But we really think we have a great vaccine to which the world said, do another clinical trial. So now they're all the way out to February or March before they'll come back with real data, we hope. Um, so that leaves us with two on the plane. And, and that was the easier one to administer, right? That was the yeah, refrigerator stability, right? Refrigerator. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, while there are uh, some, you know, nearing the finish line, we basically have two to work with. Both of these are products that, um, you know, are based on mRNA, one of which requires, as you note, uh, minus 100 Fahrenheit storage. Um, and the other is better because it can go into a standard freezer. Uh, but obviously if you're moving around and trying to vaccinate people, that even that can be problematic. Um, and as Kavita has, is noting, uh, we keep getting different stories about how many doses will actually be available between now and New Year's. Uh, I was sitting in on the CDC's big, it's called ACIP, that's their advisory committee on um, immunization policy, ACIP. And they were trying to lay out who should get vaccine first, who should get vaccine second, what should be the, the sort of protocols and uh, what everybody should be watching out for. And even they weren't sure how many vaccine we were talking about. And they kept saying 10 million doses, which would be only 5 million people. Meanwhile, we're hearing from others, oh, there's 30 million people worth, meaning 60 million doses from the two companies. We don't really know. So if you're sitting at Mount Sinai, as, as Kavita points out, or you're the governor in Albany or the governor in Sacramento or wherever, and you're trying to plan how in two weeks time are you gonna do mass vaccination? You don't have a clue how many doses you're even gonna be playing with. Ryan, you hear this, you know, I think you and I have this kind of privilege every couple of weeks when we sit with Lori and Kavita, because as, you know, parents and family members and living in the midst of this world, quite apart from anything we ever do in 
policy, our brain is teeming with questions about how do we cope with this period? And we have these two brilliant women to ask. So whatever, whatever is on your mind. Just, I want to just say a couple of words in agreement with like trying to scare the shit out of people. <laughs> um, Cause Laurie mentioned like nobody's yet walking off their job, but um, there's one person who's walked off their job, which is the president. Um, mm. And that's a great uh, mm. piece that's yesterday in the USA Today by David, um, uh, an op-ed why, saying- why, why, thank you, Brian. There you go. <laughs> in fact, the title is like, Trump has already left the building is the title. Um, so like, and part of the point of the piece is we are on our own. We collectively need to figure out what the hell we're gonna do because we currently do not have a president. Now, luckily, we have a president-elect who is already beginning to ramp up and make speeches like the Thanksgiving Day speech and things like that. But still, we currently are without that at the helm. So it's even more dire in the sense that we have to have people collectively come together. Um, and then I also was going to drill down a little bit more as well on the idea that people really can't count on the vaccine to rationalize um, misbehavior between now and quote unquote then. So today there's been a little bit more reporting that I believe it takes six to eight weeks after a person's first dose for them to actually gain full protection. So that's two months after the person even gets the first dose. So that's another two months of a large amount of death um, in this country. And then just as we were about to get on the podcast, there was a report by the Wall Street Journal that uh, Pfizer has said that the number of doses that they will distribute by the end of the year is now cut in half from their estimate because of um, quote unquote raw materials in early production fail to meet its standards. So this is, it just can't be counted on. It's not a certain variable um, with respect to the vaccine and people really have to um, ramp up uh, the degree to which we engage in uh, the things that we can, masks and uh, social isolation as well, as well as social distancing. We are really in a tough situation because you want, you want a sense of hope. It's very hard to sustain endless gloom, right? And Paul is, no wonder people want to go to the bar and party and get drunk because it's otherwise just so grim. Um, so Tony Fauci and uh, the leaders of Operation Warp Speed and the corporate CEOs and everything are all, hey, we have a vaccine. It's really good news. Looks very promising. Got to get, you know, there's hope at the end of the tunnel. And you can see the impact on Wall Street. Um, but it's the, the hardest part is going to be as we get closer and closer to actually having vaccine distribution. And then as you note, Ryan, the lag time between vaccination and genuine protection, which is not just that you're not protected fully, but you're also capable theoretically of being a carrier and passing to others. So you remain a contagion risk uh, it, until your immune system sterilizes virus from your body, right? So the, the combination of all these things um, means that whatever happens with the new Biden administration, the number one task is going to be communication. The number one task is going to be getting Americans to understand step by step by step what 
is actually available, what they need to do to protect themselves, their family, to be a decent citizen, and how much longer they have to hang in there. And then, you know, Bob Wachter, who runs uh, UC San Francisco Medical School, uh, issued a, a really striking tweet thread that went on about, uh, I don't know, about 18 tweets in which he laid out his concerns about messaging and vaccines. And one of them, which I'd love to have Kavita respond to, um, is that if you just look at random statistics in America, uh, you know, on any given day, X number of Americans die of a heart attack. Y number of Americans uh, have, you know, our deceased cause of death is kidney failure, whatever, right? Now you vaccinate in haste uh, 10 million Americans. It's a given that X percentage of them will die of heart attacks. Y percentage of them will have, you know, a fatal outcome from diabetes, whatever. How in the world do you counter the thing you could just hear screaming it right now from the anti-vaccine folks saying, see, it gave people heart attacks. The vaccine gave those guys diabetes. The vaccine did this, the vaccine did that. Um, so we have this dual messaging crisis that on the one hand, you know, let's get out and party, the vaccine's around the corner. And on the other hand, anything downside that happens to anybody who was vaccinated will be ascribed to the vaccine itself instead of as a statistical uh, predictive event. Kavita, 250 odd years since the enlightenment and what Lori is describing me as the unenlightenment, you know, the stupidification <laughs> of society at a rather broad level. And, you know, there are a lot of causes for this. Um, but when you have a whole apparatus that's designed to reject the truth and reject science and reject history and reject arithmetic because it's uncomfortable and that says it is okay to embrace fantasy, embrace conspiracy theories, embrace mythology, we are right back in the 11th century. I mean, we have re we've rejected not just the Enlightenment, we've, we've rejected the Renaissance. And, and we are living in a period where superstition is guiding the lives of half of the most powerful country in the world. What do you do about that? I, you know, I think we, we've got to come to an end of, of this conversation. And I guess the, the question I'd like to know from each of you guys as we wrap this up is the one that I suspect every listener wants to know when they listen to experts on TV. And that is, what are you telling your own family? What are you telling your friends? Should they stay home? Should they lock down? Should they plan on this being eight more months? You know, what, 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 what's the inside dope on how to deal with this at this moment of, profound crisis where the comorbidity is a national outbreak of idiocy. I'll, I'll be brief. I'll start. I have told everyone, I have said it on TV. <laughs> I've said, act like every single person you come around has COVID and treat that that way, like treat it as seriously as that. So if that means that for your own benefit and safety, you need to stay at home and you have the ability to do that, that's great. Do that. If not, I, 
you have to almost act kind of like I do where, you know, you're kind of holding things you, you've got, I, I have an N95, I use it. And then if you can't at least use a high quality mask and try to make sure that you're not careless about what you're touching and, and honest to God, that's exactly what I tell people. And I, my parents who are, and, and just to Lori's comment about Dr. Wachter's uh, tweets thread, which I haven't seen, um, my bigger concern about that, Lori, is that you're right. People will use any excuse to do anything to promote that misinformation. Yeah, I, I actually have chewed out certain friends that have decided to hold dinner parties or, you know, done uh, traveled for the holidays. I, I've I've been on the phone chewing them out, and I've sent the email saying, you know, you. You can't do this. I remember back in the first week of March, I was on um, in the Eurasia group, Ian Bremer's G0 program. And I said, you need to decide, every single one of you watching this, you have to decide right now, who do you want to hunker down with for several months? <laughs> because that's what's going to happen. And it may happen next week. As it turned out, I was exactly right about the timing and i said you know just get ready figure it out buy your supplies and hunker down figure out how to make your work life work your kids school life work etc and i think we're back there again i think we're back to uh unless you already are hunkered because you're in um you know fargo or uh parts of iowa that are having just astronomical daily growth of cases, I think everybody does really need to think, all right, here comes the holiday, the big holiday, whether you call it Hanukkah or you call it Christmas or you, whatever it is to you, if this is the season. How are you hunkering down? Who are you hunkering down with? Plan how you wanna show those you care about in your life that you love them without being with them physically. And, you know, let's just think about this next roughly two to three months as akin to approaching mid-March. Hey, well, we've run longer. We always do when we have you guys because you have much to say and we wanna hear it. Um, and I just hope the message gets home. We'll keep talking about it as we go and hopefully you guys will be back here. Um, Kavita, you'll be here every week, but we hope Lori comes back on a regular basis. Um, uh, it is comforting to some of us to hear the truth. I, I've, I find it more comforting to get a sense of what's really happening. Um, I'm, I, I suspect Ryan does too. And Ryan and I have been kind of quiet here. I, I, I hope I have. Do you have anything you want to add here before we wrap up? No, I think that that's the right way to end it, to be honest. No. Okay. So um, come back next week. Come back in ensuing weeks. But whatever you do, unlike uh, you know our general episodes, listen to what Lori and Kavita had to say here. It's, it's not about policy. You know, it's not about politics. It's about life and death of yourself and your families. Uh, and you need to treat it that way mm -hmm. um, or you're going to lose people. Uh, and, and, and we obviously don't want that to happen. 
So stay healthy. Uh, go to the DSRnetwork.com if you want more information. And we'll be back again with you next week. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top expert policymakers and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout.